Well, let's take our Bibles and uh, please open to the Gospel of Mark. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark one chapter a week, and uh, in a few minutes we'll eventually get to chapter 6, but before we get there, let's do what we usually do. Let's do a quick review of some of what we have studied up to this point. In the past five weeks, let me just describe for you uh, what we've been doing. If you weren't here, in the past five weeks, we have looked at individual chapters from each of the first five chapters, and then we've given each chapter a name as a way to sort of hang a hook on the wall, and we can hang this name on that hook so that we can remind ourselves, help us to remember what it was that we studied when we went through that chapter. For example, we named chapter one, Come Follow Me. It's in chapter one of Mark, where Jesus invites the first four of his disciples to come and follow him. We named chapter two, The Outside Always Reflects the Inside. Now in Mark chapter two, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, as well as forgiving him of his sin. Now, as you read that story, Jesus at that point asks the man, we're in the city of Capernaum, and he asks the man to stand up and walk. You know, we've reviewed this every week now for four or five weeks. The question is always, why why does he ask the man to stand up and walk? Is there any confusion? Do you think Jesus thought maybe for a moment the miracle didn't work? Maybe he's really not healed? No. Jesus asks the man to stand up and walk because when Jesus changes someone on the inside, it makes a difference how we live and act on the outside. If there is no change in a person's life on the outside, someone who professes to have faith in Jesus Christ, if there is no change on the outside, then we have every right to assume that there has really never been a transformation on the inside. We name chapter 3, having a heart for people who need Jesus. We name chapter 4, everyone does not go to heaven. And then last week, we named chapter 5, demonic activity is a real thing. In the story of the demon-possessed man living in the cemetery, we came to understand that even though God is in absolute control over all demonic activity, and yes, it's true that true believers in Jesus can never be demon-possessed. We can, however, be significantly influenced by the demonic activity happening around us. We remind ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Take a minute, turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. First Peter was written to Christians. Let's understand that. First Peter was written to Christians, not to non-Christians. It was written to Christians. And Peter says in chapter 5, verse 8, he's writing to Christians when he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's talking about Christians. Satan is out there, even at this moment, he's prowling around. And I remember when we talked about this a week or two ago, that's a, 
that in the in the Greek language, that's a that's a continuous and ongoing action. He doesn't just prowl around and then stop. He's constantly, never ending. He's prowling around, seeking someone, you and I, to devour. Now, that's the end of the first five chapters. Take your Bible, turn the page, go to Mark chapter six. Mark chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading. You can just follow along. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to read from verse 30 to verse 44. So in your Bible, I'm reading in the English Standard Version, whatever you're reading from or in, just follow along as close as you can. We remind ourselves that this is God's Word. This is the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of Scripture. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, They said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls, 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Verse 30 says, go back and look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, in your scriptures, look at this. Verse 30 is actually a response to what Jesus had commanded his disciples to do back in Mark chapter 6, but go back to verse 7. Just look for a minute at that paragraph 7 through 13. Now, let me read 7 to 13. And he called the 12, we're in Mark 6, beginning in verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now I want you to think about this. Let's just think for a minute. I want you to think about this. In verses 7 to 13, Jesus is sending his apostles, his disciples, out. He's sending them out to do ministry. In verse 30, these same disciples have now returned. Now here's my question. Well, here's one of my questions. How much time is there between verse 13 and verse 30? What do you think? They were gone for 25 minutes and came back? Think they were gone for a whole day and came back? Or how about a week? Maybe they're gone for a whole week. Maybe they were gone for a month. Mark doesn't tell us how long they were gone. He just says when they, come, when they came back. But now here's the challenge. If you and I, and I've thought about this many times over the years, but here in Mark chapter 6, if we were to read Mark chapter 6 in what I call real time, how long would we need to wait after we read verse 13 before we read verse 30? A week? A month? Verse 30 is a good reminder to all of us who are involved in ministry. Let me say this, it's a good reminder to Sunday school teachers. It's a good reminder to youth workers. It's a good reminder to youth, to youth workers and to worship team members and to nursery workers and to custodians and deacons and pastors and ushers and greeters. From time to time, everyone who's involved in ministry should give a report of their ministry to the person or people overseeing that ministry. And that's exactly what these apostles are doing when we get to verse 30. They're sort of, in my language, I'd say they're sort of checking in with the boss here. They're checking in with Jesus. They're giving a firsthand report of how things had gone, not when they're here with him. They're giving some sort of a firsthand report of how things went when they were out there doing what they were supposed to be doing. Ministry. In the next verse, Jesus says this in verse 31. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I like what it says in a new translation called the Contemporary English Version. It says this. Let's go to a place where we can be alone and get some rest. You know, Jesus is excited to see these guys come back. And he wants to hear. He already knows he's God in the flesh. Okay, I understand that. But he wants to hear from their lips. Well, how did things go out there when you were out there doing the real ministry? Point number one. The life of a disciple is not only what we do for Jesus, but it's also what we do with Jesus. Okay? There's a difference. Too many people, I mean, I'm just thinking back over my long life here, too many people who profess to have faith in Jesus are so busy doing things for Jesus 
They don't have any time left to spend with Jesus. They're so busy going through the routine and going through the motions of just trying to keep things going and doing whatever it is we're doing in ministry. We're so busy doing things for Jesus. We don't have any time left to spend with Jesus. In your Bibles, turn with me to John 15. Oh, this may actually be on the screen. John 15, verses 5 through 7. In John 15, Jesus is doing the talking here. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now the Greek word here, the Greek word here for the word abide in these verses means to remain, it means to live, it means to spend time with. It's wonderful. I, I can't tell you. It's wonderful to do things for Jesus. But Jesus wants us to understand that spending time with him is just as important as doing things for him. In fact, in many situations, I think maybe the time we spend with him is more important than the things we do for him. And when Jesus uses this word abide in John chapter 15, he's using a form of the word which again identifies a continuous and ongoing action. He's not talking about just going through the motions week after week after week and then taking a 30-second break to spend time with Jesus. And then I'm back to all this busyness that just keeps me going. It's like, the, you know, it's like that squirrel in the cage that just keeps going and going. It's like the Duracell bunny. It's time to turn the Duracell bunny off and just spend time with Jesus. I want to live my life. I want to abide with Jesus. I want him to abide with me. I don't want him to be just some sort of experience that I have for 32 minutes on Sunday morning and then the next 167 and a half hours I'm on my own. So it's wonderful to be busy doing things for Jesus but that's different than doing things with Jesus. That's different than spending time with Jesus. Let's think about some hypothetical people, right? Okay, so no names, just hypothetical people. One person tells me they've taught Sunday school every Sunday for 10 years. Another person tells me they've been on the worship team almost every Sunday for 10 years. Another person says they've mowed the lawn at church for 10 years, and the last person tells me they've worked in the nursery for 10, 10 years. Now, that's all great. And we can't thank you enough for your commitment. But my question is, in those same 10 years, how much time did you actually spend with Jesus? See, that's what Jesus wants to know when the disciples come back, and he wants to report what happened out there. Verses 30 and 31, Jesus wants his disciples to understand that to be effective, and maybe that's the word that's missing in most of our lives. See, productivity is not a synonym with activity. 
We can be busy, 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 and we get nothing done for the kingdom. We're just being busy. But to be effective in ministry, there needs to be a balance between doing things for Jesus and spending time with Jesus. From a human perspective, Jesus wants to hear from the disciples everything they experienced out there and everything they learned when they were out there doing ministry, being obedient in doing what he told them to do, go out there and get it done. But in Mark 6, it now seems there are so many people following the disciples, they can't get away. They can't get away. There's no time to be alone with Jesus. I would guess part of the situation here is that the disciples did such a great job out there doing ministry that now all these people have followed them back to where Jesus is. People are coming from everywhere. And they want to see Jesus. And they want to hear Jesus. When Jesus is with people, he received an entirely different response than when he was with the Pharisees in town. You see, we could talk about this for hours. The Pharisees in the city, they wanted little or nothing to do with Jesus. But the people, the common people like you and me, they couldn't get enough of him. And so as these multitudes come from everywhere to see Jesus, and then it says here, in verses 33, 34, 35, in his compassion, Jesus has a heart for people. He sees, this, he sees this whole group of people, which we know numbers in the thousands, and they're coming, he says in verse 34, as sheep without a shepherd, there's nobody leading them. They're just sort of wandering around there. They're not sure what to do next. Jesus sees them as people who are lost, looking for someone to lead them. And in the midst of trying to understand what they're going to do with all these people, the disciples, you know, I, by far, I don't have all the answers, but it seems to me the disciples come up with what I would call a great question, or at least a reasonable suggestion. They, they say, you know, they come to Jesus, and what are we going to do? We need to dismiss this crowd, this huge crowd of thousands. We need to give them time so they can go back into the villages and towns and buy some groceries so they have something to eat. In fact, verse 35 tells us it's late in the day. Some translations say it's, the hour is now late to the disciples. It makes all the sense to give the people to go find some food because there are thousands of people and they are hungry. And if we don't solve this problem, it's only going to get worse from here. Then in, Jesus says this in verse 37. You give them something to eat. How would you like to have been one of those disciples? And you look at this crowd of people, thousands of people. And he says, no, we're not going to send them off down to Hy-Vee and Fairway and all those other groceries. No! You give them something to eat. In verse 38, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? While the disciples are focused on what they don't have, Jesus is focused on what they do have. Jesus sees possibilities, while the disciples only see impossibilities. You and I need to remember, some of us have experienced this, have experienced this in real life. 
This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about receiving answers to prayer. Some of us have received incredible answers to prayers. Some of us have lived through this. We understand that God can take and multiply even the smallest gift. He can multiply those small gifts into the biggest gifts if we just make what we have available to God. Jump ahead to verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. The Greek word for men in verse 44 is not a word which simply classifies men as all people. The Greek word in verse 44 for men is specifically a word that identifies adult males. Now, Matthew, you remember our buddy Matthew, three, two or three guys... No, one gospel to the left. I should know the order of these gospels. If we were to take a minute and look, trust me on this, or you can turn there, Matthew 14, 21, he records that number just a little bit different. It's the same story, different gospel writer. Here's what Matthew says. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay? So years ago at our church in Minneapolis, I... I pounded this into our loving church family, and when we left after 10 years, I think that might be the only thing they remember. I don't hope it's not, but going forward, we will no longer call this the feeding of the 5,000. Raise your right hand, say amen. Okay, we got half of you. Good. We're going to work on the other half. This is not the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 20,000, okay? We got 5,000 men. And whenever you get 5,000 men, you're going to have give or take 5,000 women. And when you get 10,000 adults, you're going to have five, six, seven thousand marriages. I don't know how to do the math. And then they've got three or four kids. And so we are in a hurry. We're at 20,000. Okay? You tracking with me? Okay, so in one of my Bibles, I've actually taken a pen and crossed off the feeding of the 5,000. And I wrote 20,000 in there. Because that's really not Holy Scripture. That's just the opinion of the editor. They put that in there. Jesus didn't put that in there. Those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. We have got a huge group of people, my friends. And they're hungry. Now, let me tell you what it's like out there. I know what it's like in here at Crosspoint. But I can tell you what it's like out there in the real world where you run into people who no longer believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, when you run into people that I put in the category called liberal theologians, they try to explain away all these miracles. In fact, give them enough time, they will explain away every one of these miracles. They say that the feeding of the 5,000 is not a true miracle. But it's just sort of a generous demonstration of sharing on the people in the crowd. 
Liberals will tell us the story that it simply shows how Jesus was able to inspire an outpouring of generosity among the crowd, and so they all gave what they had out of their little lunchbox, and eventually everybody was full. They claim that the feeding of the 5,000 is simply a good story with a moral ending. When each person shares what he has, there's always enough. But not only is that wrong, it's bad theology. It's bad theology. If the people living, if the people in that crowd had had enough food with them, the disciples would have known that. The story in Mark 6 is not a story of people sharing with each other. The story in Mark chapter 6 is a miracle, and that's point number two. The feeding of the 5,000, just a minute, I'm changing that in my notes. The feeding of the 20,000, amen, is a miracle and nothing less. Now, let me bring this to a close. Imagine that we're there, okay? Just, can you imagine being there in that crowd of 20,000 people? I think out here at the, uh, the new Arena Convention Center, that seat's like, Jeremy, 12,000? Something. It doesn't seat 20. There's nowhere in town you can get 20,000 people. Imagine that we're there. And Jesus is down here in the front, or he's down here someplace. 5,000 men, 5,000 women, 10,000 kids. Jesus is standing in front of us, and he says okay, to the disciples, get everybody to sit in groups of 50 or 100. Are you with me? And as Jesus lifts his head toward heaven in a prayer, which, by the way, was a little different, because Jewish rabbis, when they prayed, they always bowed their head to the ground. But now Jesus is lifting his head toward heaven. And he prays that God would take these pieces of bread and fish and multiply them so that everybody is fed. Now just, you can almost hear it. Can you hear 20,000 people who all at the same time say, Amen. Amen. And then as Jesus, as Jesus begins to break the bread and the fish into smaller pieces the miracle begins to happen. I've got goosebumps right now. Trying to imagine what that was like. He's breaking the fish, and he's breaking the bread, and the more he breaks it, the faster, and it's just, and the, the baskets are just overflowing, and he gets another basket from another disciple, and they fill that up, and, then, and these baskets, where's these, all these baskets? How many baskets do you need to feed 20,000 people? But God supplies. And when they're all done, there's thousands of pieces of fish and thousands of pieces of bread that have been distributed and there's still some left. A God who can do that can do anything. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life. I know if we had the time, and we don't. And I know if we all could trust each other, and we don't. And I know if we all would experience this sharing real life with each other, but we don't. We could, start, we could start right down here with Gary and Scott, and we could work our way all the way around, and everybody could stand at one at a time. Don't you guys do it. These guys would do it. I know they would. Don't do it yet. 
If we all took a minute just to share a need that we have in life, I tell you, everybody in the room has got a need, and God is bigger than whatever your need is. Okay? Now, it might be a physical need. Might be a spiritual need. Might be a financial need. God is bigger than all that. A God who can take a couple little biscuits and a couple little pieces of fish and multiply that to feed 20,000 people, he can do anything. Your prayer request may seem like it would take a miracle. But that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. He is in the business of performing miracles. So let's name chapter 6, Jesus specializes in miracles. Now, as they say on Mission Impossible, your assignment, if you're willing to accept it, it's up to you. Three weeks from today, we're going to go over Mark chapter 7. So it would warm my heart if three weeks from now, you've got three weeks to read Mark chapter 7. Sharon and I, if you're not aware of it, Sharon and I are going on a trip to Africa. And we're going to the country of Zambia, where I've been, I think, four times, and now I'm excited to bring Sharon there with me. I will be teaching a group of 25 pastors who live in Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. They're all going to be in one location, and they've agreed to spend two weeks with me. We are going to go through verse by verse by verse, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles. Uh, these guys are hungry for the word. Somebody asked me, what's it like in Zambia? Let me just give you a heads up. It's a Christian. I would say it's, there's more Christianity in Zambia than there is in the United States. Half of these 25 pastors that are coming to receive more training realize that they will end up being school teachers, not pastors. It's more difficult to find a church and to be a pastor. But in Zambia... You can teach the Bible every day in the public school. Amen. Don't try that here or you'll lose your job. Not here at Crosspoint, but here in America. That's what we've come to, and we still misidentify ourselves as a Christian nation. We, are, we used to be a Christian nation, but now it's, we're on a slippery slope. We've got places that don't even believe the Bible is the word of God. We've got places, public places, where you can't even talk about Jesus. But you could pray for us. It's a long ways to get there. We'll be gone two weeks and two days. Lord willing, we'll be back in the United States, and we'll be in church on June 30th, and we're going to go over Mark chapter 7. Hallelujah. We're going to ask the ushers to come forward, and let's have a word of prayer before we take that. Remember, when we leave this morning, you can go to the bathroom or say hi to somebody out in the hall, but then the WANA leaders, if you just come back in here for a five-minute meeting, and while the ushers are coming, remember to sign up, if you would please, sign up on a time slot out there when you will pray for the search committee here at Cross Point. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the way you provide for us and care for us. and God, we're reminded that uh, you're a God who does miracles. And Lord, as we give you these gifts, we ask that you would multiply them to meet all of our needs. Lord, help us to be faithful 
in giving back to you a portion of all that you've given to us, all that you've entrusted into our care. And God, you haven't asked us to give everything back. You've asked us to be good stewards of what we have. So we ask, Lord, that we would be good stewards. We thank you for each gift and for each giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.